My first post to the Facebook group was a focused summary of Part 3, Book 2, Chapters 1-4. through four. First, we see a mysterious man on horseback ride up to a Breton inn. He's not mysterious for long, given his tricolored cockade, his grave, calm, and stern expression, his gray hair, and the innkeeper's unshakable feeling that he's talking to a priest. This man learns that there is fighting at nearby Dole, and that it is a war to the death, not just of white against blue, but of nobleman against nobleman, granduncle against grandnephew, the Marquis de Lantanac against Gauvin. He learns that so far Gauvin is winning. On his side, Lantanac has the loyalty of the peasants and the power of numbers. On his side, Gauvin has the rage of the Paris battalion, determined to avenge the mother and to rescue their adopted children. He learns that Dole is a critical battleground, because it is there that Lantanac can open the door to the English. The innkeeper urges this man not to travel by way of Dole, where he will fall into a massacre, but to turn right and avoid the danger, unless it concerns something he holds dearest in the world, something like a son. And the man on horseback, Simordan, turns left. Then we too travel to Dole, where we observe these unmatched armies on this unconventional battleground. Lantanac has an army of six thousand peasants, in leather jackets, carrying pitchforks, and dragging cannons with ropes, badly equipped, badly disciplined, and badly armed, but with the fervency of religious devotion. And Gauvin, with his fifteen hundred men, is outnumbered, but his men are uniformed officers, armed with copper-hilted swords and muskets with bayonets, trained, drawn up in formation, docile, and ferocious. Gauvin. We finally meet him, and it has been worth the wait. He is a self-confident commander, who will lead an outnumbered army into battle, without hesitation, without asking for orders, without consulting anyone but himself. He is an intrepid soldier, who always rushes headlong into combat, and who stands calm and thoughtful while volleys of bullets strike all around him, and a cannon shoots off his hat but he is also handsome, thoughtful, gentle. He takes great care of his superb brown curls. He is a philosopher and a young sage, and he is an innocent soul who has the laugh of a child. Perhaps these qualities help to explain the reputation that preceded him for clemency. Marat had said, He is firm in battle and soft afterward. We soon see precisely what he means. Taking advantage of Lantanac's secure belief that Gauvin would not dare to attack with such inferior numbers, he does just that. Taken by surprise, the peasants shout, run, fall, even shoot each other in the chaos. But Gauvin's reputation as a brilliant strategist is really confirmed when he must figure out how to rout Lantanac's army even after the peasants regroup and build a barricade. What a great scene. Using his knowledge of Dole's back alleys and of the peasants' proneness to panic, he leads twelve soldiers behind the barricade, uses drummers and his own false cry, two hundred to the right, two hundred to the left, to amplify the attack, and sends the peasants into indescribable flight. Firmness in battle. 
In doing so, he proves that Lantanac's fears about his peasant army, that they are too fluid, like water in his hand, were well founded. Lantanac needs the English. After this victory, Gauvin encounters one peasant, still armed, who had fought bravely and who had not fled. He tells him to surrender, compliments him for his bravery, and then holds out his hand. Softness afterward. The peasant shoots his pistol at Gauvin's heart and swings his saber at his head. But at that moment, the man on horseback, the man who was told to avoid the fighting, the man who was told it would not be worth the risk unless it was for his own son, throws himself between Gauvin and the peasant, takes the saber stroke to the face, and collapses. We had been told that Simordan was a tutor in a noble's household. We had been told that he came to love his pupil like a son. We had been told that he once worked in the household of the Marquis de Lantanac. We had been told that Lantanac was Gauvin's granduncle. We had been told that Gauvin's parents had died, and that his only relative was a granduncle who was largely absent. But when Gauvin learns the identity of his savior, falls on his knees and declares, My master, and Simordan replies, Your father, then we know beyond a doubt that Gauvin is that pupil, and all the pieces of this fascinating puzzle fall into place. My next post to the Facebook group was titled, Turn Left. I'm always astounded by Hugo's ability to pack substantive meaning into deceptively simple phrases. One of my favorite examples of this is the last line of Part 3, Book 2, Chapter 1. He turned left. Simordan was warned that there is fighting at Dole. He was warned that if he goes that way, he will fall into a massacre. He was warned that the risk would be worth facing only if it concerns what he holds most dear. He was told to turn right, not left. He turned left. In turning left, Simordan is defying conventional wisdom. In turning left, he is embracing his own values. In turning left, he is veering into danger. In turning left, he is showing that there is something he is willing to die for. My students always love that line, but one class in particular adopted it as their class motto. To them, it became shorthand for, make your own judgment and fight for your own values. Their graduation gift was a personalized journal, on the cover of which were the words boldly written, turn left. My next post to the Facebook group was titled, in all caps, this novel should be a movie. I've held off saying that until you have read enough that it is incontrovertibly true. This is a riveting drama of epic value stakes played out in breathtaking action. It should be a movie. As a matter of fact, I know one of my graduates, a screenwriting major at a prestigious film school, began work on a screenplay. Another of my students has said that he intends to turn it into a musical. Maybe I'll inspire one of you. Who knows what may come. But just like my injunction to paint pictures with this novel, I also urge you to imagine the scenes played out in film. Scenes like these. Soldiers moving stealthily through the dark woods, terrified of ambush, here breathing in a thicket, 
surround it with pointed muskets and their fingers on the trigger, and then, plunging into the chamber of foliage, discover a mother and three children. A loose cannon tears across the deck of a ship like the living chariot of the apocalypse, fracturing the mass, making breaches in the planking, and hacking sailors into pieces. The very man whose negligence had caused the accident jumps down onto the gun deck with an iron lever in one hand and a rope in the other. The battered ship is set adrift and finds itself between a reef and an enemy fleet. The soldiers, who prefer fire to water, drop all the anchors and open fire. In a rowboat on a calm sea, the peasant stands imperiously over the sailor who has just pointed a pistol at him and told him to get ready to die, cowing him into submission with sheer rhetorical power. Lantanac, having seen the poster and heard the tocsin, sees the approach of an army of men carrying a tricolored flag and calling his name. Believing himself captured, he bares his breast and dares them to kill him. I could go on and on and on. It should be a movie. And if you're part of the Facebook discussion, we could play that old game, who should direct it and who should star? My last post to the Facebook group was an account of some of my favorite passages from Part 3, Book 2, Chapters 1-4. through four. One of the keen pleasures of reading classic literature is that it gives you the feeling of experiencing life with a superpower, something like a moral, intellectual, and psychological X-ray vision. A great novelist has a unique ability to see to the heart of something complex, and to express that understanding with clarity and with poetry. How fortunate we are to have the opportunity to look at life with Hugo-colored glasses. I have discussed some of my favorite passages from this section in the previous posts, so I'll use this opportunity to highlight what I found to be some of Hugo's more subtle brilliance. One was this quote, They were trained, drawn up in formation, docile and ferocious, knowing how to obey like men who would know how to command. Knowing how to obey like men who would know how to command. What a brilliant way of expressing a brilliant observation. To be able to truly obey effectively, one must possess understanding of the goals and methods of an operation. Any command from an authority must be interpreted in context, adapted to circumstances, applied with an eye to the purpose. So, those best equipped to obey are those who could, if the necessity were upon them, also take command. This principle could apply to any organization, not just a military one. Anytime there is a leader at the helm, his goal should be to do what he can to make sure that those following his orders possess the understanding of those orders that would make meaningful fulfillment of them possible. Since Imanus did not make my focused summary, he must be mentioned here. On his face was the hideous, almost supernatural glow of a soul that was not like any other human soul. He was infernally brave in combat, and atrocious afterward. He had a heart full of tortuous processes. He was inclined to all kinds of devotion, prone to all kinds of fury. Did he reason? Yes but as a snake crawls, twistedly. He departed from heroism to reach murder. 
I love how quickly Hugo is able to bring this character to life, and to differentiate him both from the savagery of the peasants and the ruthlessness of Simordan or Lantanac. His is not the blind certainty of the arrow, but the deliberate cruelty of an instrument of torture. He isn't just willing to commit barbarous actions in the name of some end. He revels in the barbarity. At the risk of violating my own injunction against spoilers, yes, you will see Imanus again, and it will not be pretty. Hugo often dramatizes the epic heroism of his characters by making their responses undramatic. When a volley of bullets strikes all around Gauvin and his soldiers declare, They're aiming at you, sir, he stands calm and thoughtful. When Lantanac's cannon fire knocks the hat off the man who is both his mortal enemy and his grandnephew, his response is, How awkward of me. A little lower, and I'd have hit his head. When Radub is called to a vanguard of twelve men about to take on thousands, he carries out his orders in silence. So many of Hugo's characters are souls of the storm, and can inspire us to deeply understand and strive to embody that remarkable phrase that has become a cliché, keep calm and carry on.